Hey, listeners, I want to pitch a movie for you quickly. Um, so imagine if you would like a, like a trailer, you know, like the green thing. It's been approved for all audiences. It's like there's a black band above the top and a black band below the bottom. And it's green and then it fades. And it's Ontario Loud Productions. And you hear like the dramatic voice, which I'm going to try and impersonate. And I hope it's not annoying. And it goes like this. In a world where no one can go outside. In a time when sweatpants have become a key part of business casual attire. One podcast had the audacity, the guts, the lack of other things to do to double its weekly production. That's right, listeners. We brought out the big guns, specifically the Inception air horns. And even with those Inception air horns, I'm realizing this is a terrible idea. However, you know it's not a terrible idea? Heading to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or OntarioLoud.ca and hitting that Patreon link and signing up for anywhere from 3 to 5 to 15 bucks a month. It makes all the difference in the world to us. It's enough from me. On to the show. Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Garima Talwar Kapoor. And I'm Alexi White. And today we're checking in on something that's on top of everyone's mind, the economic and social policy responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. Have our governments done enough, particularly for the most vulnerable Ontarians and Canadians, What does the response tell us about the strengths and challenges as a country? And where do we go from here? To help us dig into this and more, I'm so pleased to welcome Armin Yalnesian and Kareem Bardizi to the pod. Armin is an economist and a fellow on the future of workers with the Atkinson Foundation. Kareem is the co-founder of the Ryerson Leadership Lab and a returning guest on Ontario Lab. Both have been working tirelessly on the front lines of the economic and social policy response, connecting with decision makers, policy researchers, and community organizers to inform our economic and public policy response to the pandemic. Armin and Kareem, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Garima. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us, Garima. We'll start with a bit of an icebreaker before we get into the meat of the topic. As you deal with the stresses of social distancing, Can you tell us about one thing that you're grateful for? I'm grateful that I have two aunts in their 80s in the north of England who are safe and that the loved ones in our lives either are not sick or had symptoms and have recovered. And as for me, I'm really grateful that I happen to be in isolation with the love of my life. It turns out we don't hate one another. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big revelation for a lot of us these days, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. agree. Maybe we can set the stage, guys, uh, with a a brief summary of where we're at so far. Um, Can you tell us uh, what are the major policy challenges that were caused by the pandemic and how are the federal government's policy responses meant to address those challenges? So we can really see that link between the things that uh, came up and had to get dealt with and, and what it is that the government's actually done and how those sort of map back onto the challenges that the pandemic created for us. So maybe I'll take a, a start with this one. Uh, thank you, Alexi. So the main challenges were initially posed by the need to pause the economy and to 
cause a lot of consumption activity, especially the consumption uh, uh, related to service delivery. And so the immediate need was really around an income support piece on the economic and social policy side and getting income to people whose revenues and whose personal income had, had fallen off a cliff. And there's been some success with that, a little less success on the stopping people from having bills to pay that they can't afford to pay at the moment. So you need to both replace income and stop um, stop costs uh, from being incurred. A little less success on that front. I would agree with everything Kareem said, but add one observation, which is that the COVID virus has actually revealed what is essential about the economy. It turns out it's, of course, money is involved, but the driver is safety and the, the value of each life. And we're also kind of tripping over this realization that a lot of essential workers are actually valued very poorly in the economy. So it's making us confront a lot of our priors on how things work in the economy. And I think that can only be for the good. You know, as we look around what's happening across the world and different governments um, and their responses to the pandemic, there's real there's no real policy manu- manual on how you react to this pandemic. What kinds of policy options were on the table when governments made the decisions that they did? And why do you think that governments chose these policies in particular? And what do you think that tells us about the state of politics and public policy in Canada today? Uh, yeah, I have some observations on this. Um, I'll begin with a little story. When I was um, at, at Queen's Park and in a senior position in the premier's office, I remember fairly early uh, in my tenure, putting the question to kind of senior officials about what was the emergency uh, preparedness plan. And the first document that was gotten uh, was produced for us was the the manual around how to get out of the building. <laughs> and that's a good thing to know how, how, how to get the, the, the people out of the building. But we kind of had to say, no, no, we're not talking about that kind of emergency. We're talking about a serious economic emergency in this case. Let's get it more specific. And at that time, there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of preparation. Um, it turns out that in situations like this, the, the entities that are more operational know how to react to emergencies. And they often do have... A, uh, preparedness plans that they've created and rehearsed. The entities that aren't as operational, but that are more policy focused, or that have to take the broader view to to a government, to an entity, to an institution across the world, were not as ready as they should have been. And I think one thing that this crisis is revealing is the real cleavage or separation between leaders and institutions that are on the front lines delivering things and need to have that form of emergency preparedness, and those broader policy uh, institutions. Uh, that need to have a a real economic playbook for a situation like this. And we're not seeing any evidence that any government or institution, whether it's populist, authoritarian, technocratic, had that available to it. So I I would say that's one commentary on this. This is is a real indictment in a sense of the policymaking class that that those kinds of preparations did not seem to be uh, as available as they should have been. Oh, geez. I'm really struck by this because the frame of reference for all policymaking and all political decisions for 40 years has been um, more market, less government. And virtually every party that has come into power has played by that playbook to some degree or another for 40 years. What I have found really striking is the degree to which the policymaking class, the bureaucrats, and the politicians have spun on a dime. Um, and basically said, 
we need more government and we need that government to actually protect lives right now. And how do we do that? I mean, I'm one of these chestnuts that have been around since the late 80s fighting the first round rounds of cuts to um, income supports for the working aged, both through welfare cuts as well as four rounds of cuts to um, unemployment insurance. And I, my entire career has been, do you guys know what you're doing? You're like, you're <laughs> actually making it harder for everybody mm-hmm. um, by so doing. And suddenly, like, in th- so I'm talking about three decades <laughs> of this conversation that suddenly went 180 degrees in the other direction in six weeks without actually the benefit of the data that supports it. It's just like everybody kind of got it immediately. We're talking about life and death here. We're completely creating policy on the fly without an evidence basis for it. But I'm going to tell you that without that evidence being pulled in really pretty damn quick and in real time, not in, you know, six, six weeks, two months after the fact, we will not be able to do the fine tuning of policy to reopen the economy, to reclose it if we oversteer. We can't do what needs to be done going forward. Um, and we may lose that focus on the value of every person's life, really the most fundamental part of what has happened that has led me to a, many jaw-dropping moments, is not only the realization, but the vocalization that the weakness of the working class, the essential working class that is themselves vulnerable, they are the main vectors of transmission of disease for all of us. So their health is our health. This is a transformative insight that we are living through in real time. And whether it stays with us on the other side of the worst part of the pandemic is a chapter yet to be written in this remarkable story. But it is certainly something I would have never anticipated seeing being written so quickly in the opening weeks of this pandemic. I share Armin's hope for that. I also share her plaudits of the, uh, I, I mean, I share your plaudits to the policymaking community that's been reacting so quickly and taking their leads from at least federal elected officials who are recognizing the need. My critique, I guess, is that is twofold. One, that in general, we haven't prioritized these kind of likely but far off risks with a policymaking um, kind of framework. And as a result of that, the, the main framework we've used to, to date, which is a really important one, which is get people money and try to protect them from their bills, hasn't yet allowed us to get ahead of those other bigger systemic questions, which maybe we'll get to, which maybe we'll get to. I, I completely agree with you in, in one respect, Kareem, which is that um, the public health message of how, you know, the precautionary principle, which is behind all public health policy was not applied because we decided to do growth ahead of any other consideration. That was our policy priority was growth. But the other side of this is leadership from countries like Germany, like Denmark and like New Zealand, where, uh, where we're seeing actually the, the frame being wellness. In fact, last year, almost a year ago to the day, New Zealand put out the first well-being budget. Yep. And it's 
due for another budget in another few weeks. And I'm wondering how commonly the frame will shift from growth to well-being. Thank you. I mean, that's a real call to action. Uh, And you guys touched on all kinds of things uh, in that answer that I want to come back to. But if I can just go sort of one level of policy further down into the details, we talked about how the government was faced with a need to, um, you know, basically get money out the door and support people in the short term. Um, If you're, I'm interested, like if you're in the the prime minister's office at, at a time like that, you've thrown away the playbook, uh, you look in front of you at all of the policy tools that you have at your disposal and help us understand sort of what do you see in terms of the, so, the sort of social architecture. You have, you have employment insurance programs, you have uh, provincial welfare programs that can be relied on, you have gaps in those programs. Uh, how do you decide and, and why did they decide to, uh, to create the programs they did and to provide money through, say, emergency benefits directly to workers versus through businesses to take the approach of going sort of both ways. How do you, how do you look at those kinds of problems and, and make a, a decision based on sort of the landscape of Canadian economic and social policy, you know, the, the legacy that we sort of has brought us here today? I mean, if you look at it as an anthropology, you know, it started the anthropology of public policy development. It started with the care benefit for people that got sick were taking care of somebody sick or where we're taking care of kids that were being pulled out of schools because they were being closed because of the pandemic. That's where it started. The next phase was EI ain't enough. Here's this thing that we're creating. We're actually extending this flat benefit to everybody so long as they were workers. Because why? We don't want a $2,000 check for everybody because the majority of people still to this day are working. Then we discovered, hey, it isn't just the on-off switch of you're working, you're not working, is a lot of people lost income. Yeah, I got a job, but I'm functioning on 20% of what I was making before. So they extended it to people that were working, but lost income. Now you start seeing the features of the gig economy and huge volatility in earnings of precarious earners. So we're starting to see the interaction of public policy and the reality of who was left out of public policy previously. And then they decided, hey, actually, you know, what's better than providing income support is helping people stay with their employer so that when you stop this medically induced coma, it's faster to bring it on strain. And so they introduced the wage subsidy, which in terms of everything they're doing, eclipses everything else in terms of proposed dollar amounts. Whether it'll happen or not is unclear. We're talking on a Friday. The portal isn't even open till next Monday, April the 27th, and they don't think the money will be flowing for another 10 days to two weeks. So by then, some jurisdictions will already be opening up again, and by then, some businesses will have collapsed. So we don't know whether the plan for the wage subsidy will actually materialize, but as you see the conception of what is it that we're trying to do, you have rewritten the social architecture of income support in six weeks. And that is breathtaking. And it happened not because we had a bunch of smart people in the bureaucracy only, though that is true, but because we had a political, uh, we had political leadership that agreed that this needed to be done and a, a leadership that was asking people all the time, what should we be doing? This was crowdsourcing where the problems were and crowdsourcing the solutions. You know, they started off with a 10% wage subsidy and ramped it up very quickly to 75%. 
Then when you move beyond income support, the government started realizing, hey, businesses, even with wage subsidies, even with lines of credit, which appeared very early in the piece, though they're modest, realized that the biggest bite out of any budget is shelter. That's true for businesses and it's true for households. So they did something about mortgage deferral, which is a little bit messy, or very early on, and it's very case-by-case based. And I actually have time for that because, as I said earlier, the majority of Canadians did not lose their job and did not lose their income. So why would mortgage deferral be universal? It's absolutely appropriate that it's on a case-by-case basis, though I hope they're not being jerks about it. The next phase was rent supports for commercial rent. My feeling is that the next phase is going to be, in fact, it might even be today, but soon we will be hearing about rent supports for renters. Since we've dealt with mortgage holders, we've dealt with commercial rent, but there's this huge group of people that though uh, many municipalities and provinces have put stops on eviction orders, that is just a time release pain, pain package. So what happens on the other side, we don't know. So you see, like the, the, the response to the virus is actually revealing what is essential about what we must provide to the economy. If we are using the economy to support us, not us to support the economy. It's a remarkable moment. I hope we don't forget what we're learning. Yeah, and let me, uh, it's a great intervention, Armin. I, I would just add that it, it really puts things in relief around, ultimately, is the economy going to start to value either through either income or income supports the relative priority of some of these things? Yeah, and to, to your point, it's not just incomes and income supports. But, you know, as we, like one of the Uber questions in this period is why not just cut everybody a $2,000 check? Some people are seeing this as the, like the portal through which we will, as they see it, finally come to our senses and introduce a basic income. Incomes are fine, but incomes without rent controls are just a, you know, a basic income without a rent control is just a massive redistribution scheme to landlords. So you need to, to actually be clear that some things can be, can happen through the market and meet your basic needs. Mm-hmm. But some things need to be actually publicly insured, publicly delivered for quality, access, and affordability. So can you tell us, uh, shifting gears to Ontario, what you see as the role of provinces in contributing to the economic and social policy response? How, how do you see Doug Ford's government performing so far? Um, where do they sort of fit in in the provincial landscape? And, and just in, uh, more abstractly, what, what do you see as the role of provinces right now in trying to contribute to the economic uh, response? Well, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you my maybe my quick summary report card on this. Strong on the communications, weak on most of the non-health system supports, and even on the health system side, recovering from cuts in many cases, uh, and a big gaping question with long-term care, which again is not, I think that this government does deserve its share of blame for um, cutting back some of the protections and not investing enough in, in, in inspections. But I would also note that what appears that the long-term care crisis was and is a crisis that was created by parties of all stripes and by publics of various dispositions. And uh, I would love to have a longer conversation around the, uh, the ideology that led to a systematic neglect of long-term care in favor of other forms of health investments. Um, so I'll just leave it at that for, 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 for that piece. Can I just then pick up on your other question, 
and 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 the the numbers show that the, the the provincial government in particular has not invested a lot because most of their um, March the late March update was around deferrals of uh, spends that they permitted uh, individuals and governments uh, individuals and businesses to make not a lot of actually new money into the system beyond the health side. I would say more generally, incidentally, that all the things Armin observed around the federal government response weren't necessarily predetermined. <laughs> the federal government does have this direct access through the EI system and the CRA into uh, the bank accounts <laughs> of Canadians. But provinces have a lot of tools too. And I think we need actually some more research and more journalism to help surface how it was that the federal government took on the overwhelming proportion of uh, income support. And you can actually tell that uh, in one massive space where they don't really have as much of a role on social assistance, except through a transfer, um, the social assistance side has not been not been funded, uh, at least in Ontario. Uh, we've had very little commentary around that. But it's I think it's important to note that provinces in general have, quote, stuck to their knitting. But provinces have a pretty significant income support role. Ontario In Ontario, they did uh, increase gains, which is a, an Ontario-specific program for low-income seniors. But it's not predetermined that the federal government had to have taken on the overwhelming income support role. Uh, the province had ha, has a role to play in many in many places, and you've seen the provinces pick spots. So, for instance, Ontario, think to its credit, finally moving to at least allow auto insurance companies to reduce premiums. Auto insurance is the third or fourth biggest expense for a lot of Ontarians, and you know they they moved uh, somewhat to to uh, uh, to help uh, reduce premiums there. But I think it's just worth noting that overall the provinces. Uh, it wasn't predetermined that provinces gave as much space to the federal government as they did. And I think the Ontario government in particular has been strong in some respects, but on the income support side and the economic response side has not been as strong as I think a lot of people would like them to see. I guess I'll start off by saying I was one of the first to say, who is this Doug Ford at the beginning? His tone was so different than how he had campaigned. But tone is not the same as substance. And whereas his tone has been magnificent, he has been pitch perfect, uh, the substance remains appalling. This is the government that cut public health funding. This is the government that, as uh, Kareem said, uh, came in after uh, other governments that had failed to act on um, public policy that could have improved care in nursing homes. Uh, this is the government that continues today in the middle of a pandemic to not per, to, to not support workers. They've told workers that they can't work in different workplaces, but have not topped up wages to permit that to happen. They have not provided PPE for these workers, personal uh, protective equipment for these workers. They have not increased testing in the way they said at the very beginning they would. They've taken a basically they're riding on the coattails of the federal investments they are they they haven't added a lot of money themselves now to be fair the federal government basically has no functional limit on how much it spends right now whereas the provinces do and so uh that that is from a fiscal point of view uh an immovable reality and yet what it shows us is that the focus on deficits remains in the middle of this crisis for this government that the idea that you're not going to, uh, they're not going to let the situation result in a big wow 
in their bottom line, in their budget, because that's still very important to them. They're going to let the feds do all the heavy lifting on income support because it permits them to sanitize their uh, elected promise to uh, reduce the debt to GDP and deficit. The BC government approach is remarkable because they are taking a bath on a lot of things. Um, one could forgive Newfoundland and Labrador that was perched on the edge of bankruptcy before this even started and is guaranteed to go into bankruptcy. It has no way of financing anything over and above what the feds do. And other jurisdictions are in similar, you know, hard straits. So Ontario had a bit more room to move and did not take that room, has not taken that room. Um, so th that is a judgment we should make on tone versus substance. And whereas the premier's tone and his two key, key wingmen, who happen to be women, uh, the uh, long-term care minister and the health minister, um, all seem very sincere. The proof is in the pudding. They haven't done much. Yep. And I, I think that on, on both of what both Armin and Kareem have said, I, so far we've discussed, you know, not only the, the remarkable role that the federal government has played, but these tensions that are now playing out between jurisdictionality and what jurisdictionality would tell us the different rules of pro provincial and territorial and municipal governments should be and what they are, whether they're politically motivated or actually just motivated by not having the capacity to respond. And so with that, I um, wanted to ask a rapid fire question. We know that for some people in communities, these investments just aren't going far enough. Where are our efforts falling short? For whom exactly? And what do we need to do? Do you think we've got the political will to get there? Efforts falling fell short until two days ago for students. Still falling short for a really wide but hard to identify without going through the exact list, all, the, the, the set of the different vulnerable populations that aren't well reached by government in particular. Uh, um, I would make a special mention of families with uh, children who would have been in childcare, would have been in the education system where the parents are not able to access the, the technology supports or are not able to understand how to use them. I think there's a real risk of a real sustained human capital loss uh, that real really needs urgent attention. And that's something that we haven't seen a lot of policy around, around yet. And we're going to need to be imaginative around how the school year restarts and what kind of intensive supports are needed to bring those kids who are not as uh, able to access uh, services. That would be another uh, a category of people. And then I think be, just because just because there's still a lot of disconnect between a lot of small businesses and the ability to access the, the resources or to have costs defrayed, I think we're going to have uh, a lot of small business loss, and that is going to result in other forms of damage to the economy because those small businesses aren't just going to pop back up overnight. <laughs> uh, and some of the some of those uh, customer relationships and some of those business skills that people have are going to be uh, lost, or people are going to give up what was already a risky enterprise. So, so there's a real risk to the small business economy in general being put at the mercy of, of larger enterprises that may not be as attentive to some of the care needs that Armin was identifying or some of the main street local ec economies that need to be supported. One group that is invisible that became a little bit more visible during this crisis 
are the workers in the underground economy, many of whom are undocumented. So we have had a love affair with temporary foreign workers and migrant workers since about 2006. We've actually increased the number of people we bring in the country to do the work that we don't want to do, apparently, or that our bosses cannot find Canadians to do. And um, some of them stay. So we know it's somewhere between half a million and a million people that are working underground. And when you work underground, it means that you're exploited in terms of your wages and you cannot trigger any protections. And these include people that are doing cleaning and personal care work, people that are doing deliveries for us. They're on the front lines. They're the public facing workers, a lot of them. And of course, they're also in, in construction. So I think there's going to be a real issue here about um, a whole group of people that can't stay at home and are on the front lines of public facing uh, transactions uh, that don't have protective gear, have no paid sick leave, are paid crap, so they have to work long hours um, and can't they have no protections if they feel that they're working in unsafe um, environments. And of course, you know, some of them are working in the factories that make your croissant and stuff like that. So they're everywhere in our economy. And I, I think one of the underlying stories in this is going to be amnesty. We haven't had a regularization of people that are here without documentation that have outstayed their work permits since 1973 in any kind of scale. Um, and I will add one other thing, which is no recovery without childcare. And we don't have a plan for how to do this properly. We don't, because the next thing that's going to happen when the kids go back to schools and childcare is they're the vectors. They're the next vectors of transmission. We have learned nothing from what happened in the nursing homes. We're still not protecting in the middle of the pandemic. We're still not protecting personal care workers in the nursing homes. What do you think is going to happen when the schools open and the childcare centers reopen? So I think we have a lot to learn still about how to navigate this period for what we are calling essential workers who remain quite invisible and disposable to us all. Can, can I just pick up on Armin's points and like the, the three pieces of legislation I would want to be the first pieces of legislation that, um, from a, any provincial government, but let's take Ontario in particular, some form of reinstatement of Bill 148 and a whole, a whole series of labor law protections that are available, that are smart protections, and that uh, make it easier to, to collectively bargain and provide those some of the protections that uh, at least at least allow workers to have better voice around some of the protections that are needed and actually add some protections themselves. Secondly, some sort of approach that recalibrates the school year and takes seriously the human capital loss that's going to be experienced by by kids uh, who don't have um, who aren't being uh, taught as well as as they could be and should and can be in the regular school system, and a third, a real child care plan um, that probably re- requires legislation because that child care is going to need to be scaled up incredibly quickly. Child care is an absolute precondition to economic rec- recovery, to Armin's point, and uh, we're going to need uh, workers to be trained for that and spaces to be available, and they need to be affordable, and that's going to have to be the third, a third leg of that pillar. You know, one of the things that we, will, we know we have to do is address the issue that we don't have paid sick leave in this country. Because we know COVID comes in waves. Based on everything we've seen in every other country that is ahead of us, we're not over once we reopen the economy the first time. So we need to address this issue of paid sick leave everywhere and soon. And we need to start thinking about health and safety and the ability to enforce 
protections for workers who are saying, this is just unsafe. This is not a, a safe environment. It's not that I don't want to work, but I, I have to work in a safe environment. Every work environment has to be a safe environment. All right. Thank you, guys. Uh, we're out of time, but just want to say thanks again to Armin Yalnesian and Kareem Bardizi for coming on the pod and for sharing uh, all those great takes on this, the current state and the future state of the social and economic policy response and recovery. So um, thank you so much for coming, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Wow, what an episode. I am just so proud of Alexi White and Grima Tower Kapoor for putting this one together. want to thank Kareem Bardisi and Armin Galnesian for coming on this podcast and talking us through their thoughts on the response. So much about this discussion stood out to me, and I will be thinking about it for some time to come. So, yeah, thank you to uh, the whole team that put it together. We'll be back on Friday with a discussion and a recap of this week's news, including the province's uh, roadmap for reopening the province and the Ontario Liberal and NDP responses to it. That'll be with uh, Sam, Alexi, and myself, so look forward to that on Friday. Ontario Loud is Sam Andrew, Alexi White, Grima Tower Kapoor, and myself, Chris Martin. Aisha Anwar and Harman Mundy do our uh, socials and some of our research. Aisha has done some amazing shareables for this one, so we'll be uh, look for those on Facebook and Twitter. If you have thoughts on what you heard, get at us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at, at OntarioLoud. That's wrap for today. Until next.